Binge heads. It's time to head back to the rocket ship forest. It's the Binge Mode Weekly Archive, as well as our complete Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, and Binge Mode Star Wars seasons are now available to listen to for free, exclusively on Spotify. Hey, everyone. The audio you're about to listen to was recorded several weeks ago before the protests that have gripped the country in the wake of the police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and too many others. We support those protests and urge our listeners to do whatever you can to dismantle white supremacy, whether that's marching yourself, giving money to organizers, analyzing your own privilege, and or listening to and amplifying black voices. Yes. Work to learn how you can be a better ally, how you can be a better citizen, how you can be a better friend, you know, challenge the racism that you see around you. And again, if you're able to, please donate. There are so many organizations doing crucial work from local bail funds to Act Blues, Move Black Lives Forward Fund, all doing work to combat racism, to combat police brutality. Black Lives Matter. Before we play today's episode, we also want to address J.K. Rowling's anti-trans remarks, which are heartbreaking and harmful and which we fully condemn. You know, one of the things that we prize most about Harry Potter as a story is the way that the story champions the power of things like love, hope, courage, the magic of finding acceptance in your life, finding a place of true belonging. And seeking to take those very things away from people is tragic. Trans women are women. Again, if you're able to donate, there are a number of organizations doing imperative work from the Ochre Project to the Trevor Project. Do what you can to support the trans community. You know, the story of Harry Potter in a very real way belongs to the community that has grown up around it. Um, There is a New York Times op-ed from December 21st of 2019 written by Jackson Bird titled Harry Potter helped me come out as trans, but JK Rowling disappointed me that, that puts it um, better than we ever could. Bird writes, I think of a community that gave me a new home, my own kind of Hogwarts after I came out as transgender, a community that continues to foster that same safe space for every queer or trans person who needs it, and which commits itself intentionally toward growth and learning in its inclusion. J.K. Rowling's latest opinions, as much as they might sting, can't take that magic away from me. I can only hope she takes this opportunity to practice some of the same values she taught us and listens to trans fans of her books. Let us tell you about our lives, how we got here, and even how the world you created saved many of us. We're ready to have a conversation if you are. Send us an owl. End quote. And now, our previously recorded episode on Saga Book 2. Thanks for listening. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Folks, the issues of Saga, an incredible comic book that we're going to be discussing today, feature... Scenes of a cave-dwelling dragon that self-filates and then ejaculates molten fire. Indeed. So if that's not your thing, please check out The Ringer's new podcast, TV Concierge. Listen, who among us? One more warning. Benjamin contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're asking Clara for tattoo recommendations. Ink me up. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now... Binge mode. This, this is very kind, Hazel. I haven't read any heist since high school. 
The man who wrote it is pretty much how my mom and dad decided to make me. Do you think he's the best writer ever, too? He's very clever. But I don't think artists should be ranked like racehorses. And no offense to the rest of your family. But anyone who thinks one book has all the answers hasn't read enough books. Of the many things my first teacher taught me, that's the one that stuck. Oh yeah, 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 Stirring. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, Beautiful, gorgeous, inspiring. Thank you, thank you. Welcome to Benjamin Weekly, folks. Proudly part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of the Ringer.com. What a great EIC and what a great website, folks. <laughs> oh, buddy. Joining me today, now that he's finished tripping on Fade Away with Yuma. I've never done it in front of our children, Mal. <laughs> FYI. Keep Isaac and Cram and Steve pure, please. <laughs> it's Ringer Senior Creative, your favorite open circuit team member. Jason Concepcion. Mal, just like Yuma, I'll pot exactly as I lived because it's another special quarantine edition of Binge Mode Weekly, where as we social distance amid the coronavirus pandemic, we'll be coming to you once a week to cover a series of rotating topics, revisiting some of our favorites and diving into some new stories as well, while also getting to work on the next full Binge Mode project. More info on that coming very soon. Please subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings, or you'll never get to take another dance class with Ginny again. Missing not a lot, honestly. Well, Big deal. you know, she's putting a lot on offer. She's a homewrecker. Please. <laughs> <laughs> also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place. Share your favorite Upshur and Doff work. Mm. Also... If you're looking to spice up your work from home wardrobe before zooming into Four's Sim, please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Last time on Binge Mode Weekly, we answered your Game of Thrones questions on our Thrones one year later uh. anniversary edition of Ask the Underscore. What a delight that was to talk about Thrones again, pal. Missed miss talking about it. <laughs> Me too. On our last Binge Mode Weekly saga chat a few weeks back, we explored the first 18 issues of Saga, the absolutely outstanding Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, epic space opera from Image Comics. And today at long last, we're diving deep. Deep. <laughs> <laughs> Into book two, a.k.a. volumes four through six, a.k.a. issues 19 through 36. As always... Spoiler warning. While today's primary focus is going to be that set of issues, Saga 19 through 36, we will be talking about the entire 54-issue run to date as we go. That's right. There are some shocks, folks. So if you're not all the way there yet, consider pausing until you are all the way there because there will be some shocks. Read it and then come back and listen. Join us. That's right. But if you are ready, show your wings to sweet Noreen. Because it's time to start our own education. 
Mal? Hmm? Every relationship is an education, and so is every episode of Binge Mode. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Saga chapters 19 to 36 by making a trek to the rocketship forest. Like issue one, issue 19 opens with a birth. Love that symmetry. On the dwarf planet, the robot kingdom, an important ally of landfall, Princess Robot, Thor's wife, has just given birth to their son. Little robot baby princeling. Mm. Meanwhile, our heroes, our family, Marco, Alana, Hazel, and friends, have been having a go at something like a normal life on Gardenia, the planet with great weather, where the open circuit, which is a combination of pro wrestling, improv, soap opera, reality TV, all the good stuff, is produced. Their newest hire, Alana. And Alana is doing, you know, not that great. Her biggest supporter, her new job, is Yuma. Tough place to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Heist's second wife and currently the circuit set designer. Yuma is also a keen drug user. The months of welcome sedentary living have a natural downside. Our family is bickering more. Quote, this is the story of how my parents split up, reads Hazel's narration. That cut me to the core the first time I read it. Devastating to the line. Core. Devastating line. Yuma introduces Alana to the drug Fadeaway, and the force of it hits Alana like a velvet tsunami. She is hooked. Meanwhile, Marco has begun a accidental but mild and very real flirtation with Ginny, a woman he met at the playground. A married. She's woman. ugly. Just ask Hazel. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> She's a dance teacher. Now, Marco is not exactly looking for a fling, but he is completely clueless about what Ginny is looking for, at least at first. Yeah. She has to come out and say it. It's Ginny. Palms like a longshoreman. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> With Alana working long, grueling hours, Marco clearly relishes company, the opportunity to engage with someone else, to vent. Ginny, meanwhile, there's no two ways about it. That's right. She's down to clown. I mean, Marco's a good looking guy and she's handsome, very handsome man. And she is out here looking for it in the robot kingdom. Dengo, a commoner and a custodian, now a revolutionary terrorist trying to bring attention to the unequal nature of robot society, unleashes a murderous rampage. He kills Princess Robot and kidnaps her child and sets course for the cameras on Gardenia. Bells for Princess Robot. Terrible what happened to her. Absolutely awful. awful. Meanwhile, Prince Robot the Fourth is in the midst of it all time. <laughs> all time. Fuck Bender on Sextillion. Just burying his problems under five tons of fucking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I mean, as his doctor will tell him, he has seen all sorts of anal warts from people who returned from Sextillion unchecked. Yes. Yes. You gotta be careful out there. You really do, and he is not being careful. <laughs> the wretched mistress of the brothel planet, Mama Sun, who you will, of course, remember from the Sophie-centric horrors of book one, tells for the news he didn't even know that his child had been born. And in a rage... 
He murders Mama's son. No fucking bells for Mama's son. Fuck her. She's a monster. Awful. And four sets off for the kingdom. But he finds no comfort in his homecoming with King Robot, his father, displaying the newest OLED technology on his flat screen head. (laughs) Beautiful 87 foot flat screen head. You see every color. Unbelievable stuff. I mean, the Battle of Winterfell was pinpoint precision on King Robot's head. <laughs> you could see everything. Agent Gale arrives. Boom. Tells this fucking guy. Four, just the worst, that wherever Dango's going, landfall intelligence can track him. On Gardenia, Alana's drug use is now officially a problem. Yes. When she plagiarizes a line of heist during a open circuit scene, even Sloppy. Yuma begins to think that she's using too heavily. It was a reckless move. Alana's love of heist is how Prince Robot found them. What if someone else makes the connection? And of course, someone has. Upshur, one half of the reporting team, Upshur and Doff. If Yuma thinks you're being sloppy, you've gone too far. Let me tell you, Yuma has a PhD in sloppy. <laughs> Alana arrives back at the ship after work. Pops another fadeaway, and Marco, just returning from a grocery run, sees her. So you do drugs now? The couple have a massive, massive blow up. Marco asks if Alana's ever been high in front of Hazel, and when Alana seems to admit that she has, Marco snaps and throws the bag of groceries at her. It's horrifying. Alana kicks him out. And where does he go? Ginny's. Dango arrives at the circuit studios and continues his murderous rampage. He wants to broadcast a speech to the galaxy. He kills several of Alana's co-workers. When he turns his weapon on Yuma, she offers up something pretty precious and more disruptive than airtime. Marco, Alana, and Hazel. Awful. At Ginny's, Marco sees Punk Kunk, Hazel's beloved doll. This is just as Ginny's leaning in for the kiss. Hazel can't sleep without this. The doll gives Marco the opening that he's been looking for to head back home to the rocket ship. But he doesn't get there in time. Dango has broken into the ship, and in the commotion, Alana has set the ship to blast off. Marco watches bewildered as the rocket ship flies off into the night sky. And just then, Yuma, wounded and apologetic, staggers out of the woods, followed by, this is a great moment, Yeah, Prince Robot the Fourth. Shared goals can often create strange alliances, and we have one right here. Prince Robot and Marco together. Each needs to reconnect with his respective family, and they can only do it with each other's help. It's an uneasy relationship at best. Four and Marco fucking hate each other, and Four will only address Marco through Goose, and Yuma, meanwhile, has introduced Marco to Fadeaway, leaving the pair passed out and drooling after an overdose. Another valuable contribution, Yuma. Thanks. Thank Yuma, thank you so much for what you have done. God. The pair have barely recovered from ODing when their ship is waylaid by Robot Kingdom Royal Guard forces. The ship is severely damaged. A critical fuel leak has sprung in the engine room. Yuma, she's heard enough of our shit talk, Jason. That's right. And she sees a chance to make amends for her treachery, her betrayal. She enters the engine room and high as fuck on <laughs> fade away, repairs the leak, 
at the cost of her life. Bells for Yuma. She earned it at the last minute. It was like a Steph Curry shot at the buzzer. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dengo finally reveals his plans to his hostages. He is handing them over to a band of terrorists, freedom fighters in their minds, called the Last Revolution. They are basically as disgusting as you expect them to be. They plan to trade Hazel for the release of their comrades from prison. But after a pep talk from Alana, Dengo sees a light and disagrees with the last revolution's methods. A fight breaks out. Clara manages to buy the android some time, and he uses it to execute the last revolution's leader. Marco, Prince Robot, and Goose crash land and make their way toward the last revolution's ship. The fighting there is chaotic. But at the end, Marco and Alana are reunited. Dango? Dead. No bells for Dango. No, no. Zero bells for the murderous uh, terrorist Dango. Killed by four. Who meets his son for the first time. But not a happy reunion for everyone. Because Clara and Hazel are lost after the last revolution ship that they were still on blasts off. Elsewhere in space, a new player has entered the fray. The brand. The Will's freelancer sister. And her sidekick... The beautiful St. Bernard sidekick, Sweet Boy. Bobby! (laughs) The brand learns that Gwendolyn is connected to her brother and finds Gwen at an archive. Gwen and Sophie and Lion Cat have just acquired a formula for an elixir that they think will heal the Will, who is lying catatonic in the hospital. All that's needed is the ingredients, and the brand decides to team up with him. First, and really, only thing on the shopping (laughs) list. (laughs) Yep. Gotta have that dragon semen. You need the dragon jizz. I feel the need. <laughs> the need for dragon seed. <laughs> oh my God. How many vials of dragon semen do you think Snape kept in the potions cupboards? <laughs> Down there in the dungeon stores. No, that is dragon semen. Potter. Oh, God. You will notice the effects of dragon semen right away. I could teach you to bewitch the mind and snare the <laughs> senses. Jack off a horny dragon. Oh. We're done. No, we're not done. We're only getting started. Yeah. <laughs> On Demimond. Quick Thinking by Sophie leads Gwen and the brand to the location of the last male dragon on the planet. And they find him high up a mountain, <laughs> gobbling down on his own genitals. He looks so happy. He looks so content. He's blissful. <laughs> Just up in his man cave, sucking his own dick. In the throes of pleasure, and honestly yeah. rudely interrupted by this, this group. Could not agree more. Sophie rushes in, oblivious to his need for privacy and manages to acquire the spunk. In the end, the brand is bitten in half by the very same dragon. Bells! Bells. The brand! We barely knew Died securing dragon jizz for her kin. What a way to go. Gwendolyn and Sophie use the formula to bring Will back to health. But when he learns that his sister died during the mission to Demimon to acquire the dragon jizz, he flies into a rage and they leave him, taking Lion Cat with him. I'm fucking ingrate. Honestly. I know, man. Yeah. Come on. 
What do you think it was going to be safe to get the jizz from the dragon? <laughs> Would you rather just be dead? Like, sorry, this is like literally we risked our lives to get jizz from a dragon. He clearly did not watch the Triwizard Tournament. Has no idea what was on the line here. Hazel, Clara, and Lexus, one of the last revolution members, end up prisoners in a re-education camp on landfall. Clara has concocted a cover story that the three of them were slave laborers aboard the ship that the Robot Kingdom discovered. Years passed. It's really amazing. You turn the page every now and then and Hazel has just aged before your eyes. Hazel's able to attend school with other children. Clara has discovered a remarkable fondness for prison tats. Yeah, she's gone full Ben Affleck. <laughs> I don't know if she has a full Phoenix piece on her back, but she definitely immediately went for the dagger next to the eye oh on like God. day three. Hazel's true nature, of course, is kept secret. Ah, but not for long. Hazel forges a bond with Noreen, her teacher at the camp, and reveals her wings. Meanwhile, Marco and Alana have been scouring the galaxy for information about their family's whereabouts. United by their shared mission, they've become quite a team. After years of searching, they discover their family's location. Landfall. After the brand's death frees them from the spell that she had them under, Opsher and Doff leap back into action. They travel to the open circuit, meet with a notorious near homewrecker, Ginny. Very, very near. Who's <laughs> just like, here, step a foot or two away from my husband so I can tell you about my almost boyfriend. Just, you know, yeah. just right here in the backyard. That's fine. <laughs> Turns out, and this is full-on tough look for our guy territory. <laughs> this is where he crosses the line, actually. This is where the line is crossed. Marco called her from the road a year back. What? From outcome. Marco! This is... No! That's where he crossed the line. That Man. is where. Accidentally or purposefully tiptoeing into you need to delete your call log territory here from Marco. Yes, Very rough. Come on. Why are you why are you calling her? For what I know, reason? Everything like the bond is so <laughs> meaningful that he needs to follow up. She Come thought on. your name was Bar until two seconds yeah. ago. I know. <sighs> on outcome, Upshur and Doff are quickly taken prisoner by a now Thor in Endgame esque the Will. It's shocking stuff from the Will when we see him. Absolutely. Oh, meanwhile. Plots are forming. On landfall, Noreen has decided to help Hazel and her family escape. Marco and Alana convince Prince Robot IV to help them get past landfall's defenses to rescue Hazel and Clara. Noreen's plan is a mess. But in the end, <laughs> Marco manages to teleport back to the ship with Hazel and Petrichor, a fellow prisoner who helped protect Hazel in the camp. Clara, who's found a community and a home in the prison, decides to say... As the family reunites, Petricor smells something on Alana. She is pregnant. Bah, bah, bah. What a great cliffhanger that was, too. Ooh, amazing. Jason, like all podcasts involving real princes and princesses, there wasn't a lot of happily ever after. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's head for a nighttime smoke. 
The defining theme of this episode is things fall apart. Let's start, of course, with Alana, Marco, Hazel, Clara, Isabel, the core gang here. The first 18 issues of Saga are, as we discussed, an ode to the power of family, a thrilling, brightly colored, in turn, wrenching and hilarious treatise on the ability the most meaningful relationships have to transform our lives and thus the worlds that we inhabit. Throughout those issues, though, Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples never let us forget that part of the reason a family serves as a a shield for itself, a protective shell around the ones who give it form, is because it has to. The universe is full of forces built to break it down, wearing it thin until it finally crumbles. The 18 issues that comprise Saga Book 2 are an endless reminder of that reality, a really relentless depiction of the challenges that others thrust upon us and of the sometimes even more immovable ones that we thrust upon ourselves. As Yeats wrote in his revered 1920 poem, The Second Coming, recently discussed on our Devs podcast. Shouts to Devs. <laughs> and, recently, and, and recently edited by Devs also. <laughs> <laughs> the Falcon cannot hear the Falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Part of that forms the stanza that serves as the epigraph in and, of course, inspires the title of Chinua Achebe's seminal 1958 novel, Yes, Things Fall Apart, a milestone in African literature and a really brilliant examination of, among other things, the ways in which change impacts lives that are often governed by tradition. Wonderful book. When... We rejoin Marco, Alana, Hazel, Isabel, and Clara in issue 19. They're processing change on Gardenia, the neutral planet housing the vaguely underground open circuit, and a whole host of new roadblocks for our would-be trailblazers. They're doing exactly what Heist and Clara incepted them to do. They're earning a living. They're positioning themselves to provide for the life that they're trying to lead. They're also, of course, in hiding. Hazel's wings are never visible. They're tucked beneath her clothes. Marco's hair is bleached. Kind of hot, to be honest. He looks really good, even though he complains about the haircut. He's just a good looking guy. He can. There's Ooh. a lot of things he can do. He's got, he's got a wide range of looks that he can go for. When he grows the beard, the full beard later on in this run, it's just like, I need a, a moment alone after, after seeing that. Wonderful stuff from Marco. Grab those horns. <laughs> His face here at this point in the story is covered in bandages whenever he's out in public. He's masquerading as a war veteran named Barr, which is both a really honestly lazy alias because using your father's name is not a super great (laughs) way to hide. (laughs) But it's also a really touching nod to the grief that Marco still carries, obviously following his father's death. Alana, meanwhile, literally masking her identity, putting on a wig and a cape and a leather bodice to act as zipless in the open circuit. They are trying to earn a life where they can just be themselves. But to do so, they have to first pretend to be other people. 
It does not bode well that the first conversation we witness Marco have in this new era of secret identities and intergalactic witness protection leads him to needing to clarify that he is, quote, married, happily married. <laughs> Enter Ginny. Palms, perhaps like a longshoreman, but certainly thighs like a dancer who's, you know, cruising at the playground, cruising for a connection, offering Hazel a spot at her dance studio, but failing and indeed not really trying to mask her attraction <laughs> yeah. to Marco, who fails to avoid wandering into this web of woes, despite Ginny's initial offer, including the very charged, very pregnant phrasing, quote, maybe channel some of that excess energy. Indeed. <laughs> oh, boy. Before you know it, you'll be going for strolls around the lake. It's only the giant squid to watch. Pick up what's been put down here, my guy. The story transitions boy. fittingly from Marco meeting Ginny at the playground to Alana, acting out a scene in which her open circuit character, Zipless, rages at her mate over perceived infidelity beyond the portents at play here for our couple. Alana's having a very tough time here as Zipless. She nearly loses her job after trading barbs with a heckler who is watching the stream. And when Heist's ex-wife, second ex-wife, Yuma, and the revelation that Alana has a kid at home helps secure Alana's position for a bit longer, she arrives home only to find the type of turmoil that defines so many marriages, so many long-term relationships. But Thus far, it feels really atypical for our pair that has seemed so in the throes of their own romance. Everyone mm -hmm. in the rocket ship is on edge. Isabel is repulsed by the fact that Frendo, Goose's old walrus-like pal, has, quote, menstruated all over the living room. <laughs> <laughs> menstruated all over the living room. Oh, God. Clara is appalled that Hazel, quote, would fall in love with the shitting monstrosity. First of all, Frendo, okay, needs to be housebroken, but Frendo is delightful. Wonderful. Frendo is a delight. You gotta put in the work to break down the walls with Clara. That's all. She'll love you in the end, you know? Now, of course, part of the reason for Clara's feelings is that she uh, procured Frendo for her blubber, not her friendship. Classic Clara at work here. Alana's stressed Terrible. about repair expenses on the rocket ship and sad that the child she's working all day to support is just asleep before she can even get home. And Marco's pissed by the insinuation that he did something reckless and wrong by taking his kid to the park. Quote, so just because I don't make money means I'm not working too, he asks. That's not what I said, Alana replies. We promised to give Hazel as rich a childhood as we possibly could. We promised to be careful. This is just really, Ooh. you know, the setting is space and a rocket ship and an alien planet and all these uh, wild alien characters. But this is like the human experience laid bare right here yeah absolutely i mean these are in in some ways context aside the the most yeah. relatable concerns and positions the dilemmas that a lot of people face in everyday yes. life but with saga's central family those worries stem not from normalcy but from the fact that their union represents an active threat to the very idea of normalcy for so many other people in the galaxy there are no wanted posters for them, Marco says, quote, because Landfall and Wreath don't want anyone to know that our family even exists. But when Hazel hears their voices, runs out to greet them, everything that they were just fighting about instantly melts away. She says she wants a skish, which 
Marco translates as squish, a hug that turns her into this gooey little marshmallow at the center of a Marco Alana s'more. Also, uh, Staples is rendering Hazel just as little a little love bug right now. She is so cute, so cute. like a little gumdrop, little gumdrop, <laughs> cutie, precious. It is really so so sweet and heartwarming. So encouraging and hopeful. This little moment in which the three people who are risking everything for each other embrace so tightly that it almost feels like they're clinging to life rafts instead of just each other. And they say to each other and to us, we're going to be okay, right? But that's not the only thing we hear there as the determined, loving little family huddles up entwined. Hazel's narration scrawls across the top of the page, a classic saga dichotomy at play here, hitting us with this like portkey like pull behind our navels, hoisting us out of this dream moment and right back into the hell of the reality that they have to face. This is the story, she says, of how my parents split up. And you're absolutely right. This is such a central piece of what makes Saga feel the way it does, this use of narration to set up a classic contrast with what you're seeing and in a way that really hooks you and shocks you and troubles you. I mean, I mean, I felt extremely sad when I read that narration for the first time. I was like, oh no. Alana's open circuit gig is a apt microcosm of how life can so often feel. As Hazel tells us here, and as Alana told Marco in book one, she dreamed of joining an acting troupe when she was younger. But as anyone who's ever gotten one knows, Hazel says, a dream job is still a job. Saga commits to numerous pursuits, but one of the most elemental is the reminder that being in a fantasy world doesn't, mean you're always living in a fantasy. And for Alana, life is at once an exercise in escaping and a string of moments that makes escape impossible. Seemingly small things like her colleagues' use of the language of battle. We're killing it, annihilating, to describe their pursuit is offensive to her. There's an actual war happening right now, she scolds them. You mistake, meanwhile, they're not soldiers or entertainers. Quote, We're drug dealers, she says, adding, the circuit has only ever existed to pacify an angry and a hopeless population. Well, listen, when Yuma is like the hammer that seizes a nail everywhere, (laughs) the circuit, she says, can change the way people feel, but not for long. And it can't change their natures. It can't motivate them to go into the world and do something real. Think about the two people having this exchange. Yuma, who is married to Heist, and Alana, who changed her entire life and the nature of what some in the galaxy believed life could and should be yes, because of what Heist wrote, because of the message embedded in his words, in his art. But Yuma's stance, we soon realize, isn't a judgment. I adore drugs, she says. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's just the way she processes the world. Oh, it doesn't help that she literally looks like a untrimmed bud of weed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I think not. The circuit's narcotizing effect is a credit in her mind. Oswald tried to change the worlds with his novels, and all it got him was dead. I actually think we're better off just trying to make as many people in this universe as blissed out as possible, even if it's only for a bit. And doesn't being blissed out, in this quote, sound like a damn fucking blessing to Alana, who, as she notes, has not had a moment's peace since Hazel's birth and being on the run having her life threatened at every turn. That doesn't mean she doesn't love her child, but it's been difficult and she hasn't had a rest. Running ever since the very beginning of their relationship, chasing a type of liberty that we now know is never going to come. These two planets, Landfall and Wreath, 
are never going to stop looking for her and her child ever. Nothing, of course, is inherently wrong with seeking a little escape, a little fading away. But as Alana is tripping severely, Marco is trying to raise their kid, taking Hazel to dance lessons, trying to broaden her worldview. These are how the seeds of resentment take root and spring above the surface, turning into a weed that can wrap itself around a family. As Marco dances with Ginny, spawned to comfort by her offering the same encouragement that his father used to, you have to be brave before you can be good, Alana is behaving in a way that leads her to say, God, this is the first scene of every boring cautionary tale. (laughs) Now, worth noting, an extramarital affair tends to be a scene in those cautionary tales as well. Yes. But Ginny's like, Listen, let me tell you about the open marriage life. Going full dro from Insecure here. Preaching the virtues. Pedal to the metal. <sighs> the freedom, as she puts it, of trusting each other to make your own choices when you're on your own. And the need in any marriage for a few secrets. Only Hazel literally pissing herself. In, in delightful fashion could rival the dragon that they'll encounter later in this tale. Saves Margot from the precarious nature of this particular moment. But often in a relationship, if you're not feeling bad about something that you actually did, you're resenting something that you didn't do. Or trying to stay away from the people who might make you feel that way. From the moment it's formed, Hazel says, a family is almost always under attack. The trick is figuring out which threats to deal with first. This section of the story and it's the way the observations it makes about relationships, serious relationships, long-term relationships, and the ways they are put under stress and the ways they naturally evolve from that first rush of romance to the everyday life stuff that can get on people's nerves and slowly pick people apart is just incredibly cutting and, and really, really real. Like, really real. Yeah, incredible, this is a incredible creative writing here. Consistently unflinching examination of human nature. Yes. In all the many ways it manifests. Yes. While her son and daughter-in-law are busy falling into the same pitfalls that so many of us have fallen into, Claire is reading Heist in the Bath. Who among us? She ridicules his prose. <laughs> but there's great wisdom in Heist's words. Quote, she looked at her brother's bloody teeth and finally accepted the truth. The passage from Sandtrap goes, quote, the only true revenge is forgiveness. We're starting to realize around this part in our story how much Mark and Alana will need to forgive each other for. In one of the most quietly heartbreaking moments of the entire story thus far, yeah. we see them have sex without any of the uh, typical kind of passion or tenderness that we have seen in their uh, lovemaking in the past. It's just even the, even the presence. Yeah. Yeah. It's just taking taking care of business. Alana is high, not in the moment, not having confided in Marco about her use of fadeaway. Marco is responding in, in some way, at least in part, to Ginny's advances and his anxiety with having allowed himself to end up in that situation. Even absent an actual transgression, this this encounter for him is more like an apology and, and yes. like a calling home. Marco is literally inside of Alana, but the distance between them is immense. 
Some nights, Hazel says, even two old friends deciding to get as close as humanly possible can still be worlds apart. I mean, this the, this stuff is just absolutely trenchant, cutting to the bone stuff. <sighs> For Alana, the haze that she's in extends to work as well, where she slips in that heist quote mid-broadcast. Never worry what other people think of you, because no one ever thinks of you. She's Again, high, clearly not thinking in crystal fashion, so out of it that she doesn't even realize Marco is behind her as she accepts another dose of fadeaway on their own front doorstep back at the rock ship. So you do drugs now, Marco says, and this <sighs> grocery bag is in his arms. That's new. And this scene is really deeply, deeply, deeply upsetting. Yeah. Things spiral incredibly quickly, violently, and devastatingly. Alana launches into a tirade about how soul-crushing her work is, the burdens that have pushed her to use. And Marco asks why she's shutting him out. As long as this is accusatory dickhole night, she fires back. (laughs) Who the fuck is Ginny? Woof. Marco, it transpires, has been saying Ginny's name in his sleep. We should note also... That this is now the second time in their relationship that he has spoken another woman's name yes. while unconscious. Which who is, could forget who the fuck is Gwendolyn? <laughs> who the fuck is Gwendolyn? Which, as anyone in a relationship will tell you, ain't good. That's a no-no. That's a no. Not good, folks. He is either too ashamed or actually too unsure of himself and what he's really feeling to even acknowledge what she is saying, even acknowledge the the, engage with the charge. Instead, classic human being behavior here again, deflecting. Have you ever been high in front of our child? He says. And when Alana says, so what if I have, Marco throws the bag of groceries at her forcefully, violently, intending to do her harm. Now, People, us included, are often far more willing to forgive fictional characters than we are people in real life. But this is unambiguously abuse. This is a a sin that will never leave them, will never leave their, their marriage, their relationship. It is a devastating moment in their life together, a wound that time will never be able to fully heal. In his shame and disgrace, Marco, kicked out of the home that he has built with Alana, that he has discovered with her, Goes to, and this is a bad decision, Ginny's. Now, to come to slightly to his defense, Marco is a fugitive and does not have a lot of people in his life on Gardenia. Everyone he knows and loves is in the rocket ship, but yeah, man. I mean, I just, I don't know, like, scrounge the credits for a hotel room. Something, something. The girl your wife was just asking you about is not the person that you can stay with after you have a fight with your wife. Marco wants to repair things with Alana, but doesn't know how. Ginny has been waiting for this moment, opens the door in a t-shirt, and shoots her best fuck-me eyes at Marco, who she knows at bar. Quote, a lot of people who came into my family's life looking like heroes ended up acting more like villains, Hazel tells us in narration. I wish I could say the opposite was also true, but that was pretty fucking rare. Is Marco, whom Alana loved so much that she sparked an intergalactic pursuit of villain? My asshole father used to knock my mom around, she tells Isabel. I've got a zero tolerance policy for that shit. 
Well, Isabel's tactic for trying to jumpstart Alana's forgiveness, basically, well, you did drugs while you watched your kid, isn't fair or right. It does lead to a moving story from her own life. She tells Alana about her ex-girlfriend, Wendy, and how she didn't realize what their relationship was and what they had until it was too late. How pathetic is that? She asks Alana. I need to get blown in half before I realize what a good thing I had. Life is complicated, she adds, but it's also fucking short. If you find someone who can forgive all your bullshit, the least you can do is try to forgive them. And it's important to note that Saga is not at all condoning Marco's actions. It's casting a light on the utterly unmooring turmoil caused by someone you trust and love letting you down, betraying you so fully it forces you to compromise something about who you are. In the open circuit, Hazel tells us as we pan to Alana popping more fade away. And just before we see Marco lean in to kiss Ginny before the sight of Hazel's punk conk calls him back to himself and out of making another terrible mistake, characters are supposed to have arcs, she continues, where they grow and evolve over the course of the story. But mom always thought that was nonsense. In the real world, people never change all that much. That, that life. Fucking. BKV, boy. Goodness. Circumstances, however, do change. And when Marco returns with Pankonk, he does so just in time to see the rocket ship, which is now carrying Dango and Prince Sling, who we're going to talk about in a few minutes, in addition to his own family, take off. Months pass, and they remain under Dango's power. I'm done waiting for my son or anyone else to rescue us, Clara tells Alana. Sometimes... Counterintuitively, trying to stitch your life and your family back together means not relying on them at all. Being the strength on your own for them that you wish they could be for you. Marco, though, is hunting for his family so fervently that he has made the unlikeliest alliance so far in the tale. He's paired up with four. The robot prince who tracked him and tried to kill him and his family in book one. but. Ultimately, the only thing stronger than their absolutely soul-deep ingrained hate for each other is their love for their respective families. And Princeling, Forrest Kid, is with Dango, who's with Hazel. Something else is with Marco, though. The weight of what he's done, that bitter regret, the disdain that he feels, not only for his actions, but for what the capacity to behave in that way says about who he is. I'm sick, Yuma, he says. No matter how hard I try to quit, I'm obviously addicted to the very thing I've taken an oath against. This is this is hard. <sighs> Man. Violence, right? Yeah. He has not just been running from the war. He's been running from what the war unearths about his nature. So when he asks Yuma what Alana was hoping to feel when they started getting high, three bong hits and ten pops of fade away to Yuma replies and really strikes a chord. Peace, she says. And so Marco, who was so distraught over Alana's usage and the risk that it posed to their family, takes fade away himself. He, in his mind at this point, can't lose what's already gone. He can only try to understand how it went away. As Marco's under the influence of the fade away, he flashes back to key moments where his relationship to violence impacted his everyday life. When Alana was pregnant, we see she asks him to spank her during sex. A little rough trade, as she put it, he refused, telling her about the scarring experience from his youth when, as a seven-year-old, he struck a girl who hurt the family pet. 
quote, watching this person casually hurt another living thing, especially a smaller defenseless animal, something inside of me just snapped. This is a highly illuminating bit of introspection and insight into how Marco's best tendencies, his desire to protect people, mm-hmm. can at times be interwoven with his very worst, his base yes. deep urge to harm. It wasn't the core act of hitting the other child that stung him. It was the disappointment he saw in Barr's eyes. The impact, in other words, of fracturing something about a familial bond that he held dear. How did Barr punish him? With more violence, belt lashes on his back, perpetuating a cycle of pain and despair. The anguish in his dream morphs into an Alana Punk horror that gives birth to a bloody bar scolding Marco. You drove your family away and they're never coming back. When Marco wakes, thanks to Forrest's begrudging assist of providing his blood, which scrubs out the effects of the drug, <laughs> he's not angry with Yuma for giving him the bad batch. It was perfect, he tells her. He may not have fun or found peace, but he did find clarity. And though he'll never do it again, he says, quote, I think I finally understand myself again. Understands what violence has done to him, how it has corroded him and affected him. But also that it's a part of him and he needs to accept that and understand it in order to control it. I'm going to find the man who ripped my family away from me, he says, and I'm going to cut his fucking head off. Families aren't the only thing that fall apart. So do the promises we make to ourselves. Oof. Marco, clearly a fan of Alien. His fadeaway dreams are inspired by that. Marco's pursuit of that vengeance is ultimately aided by Yuma's sacrifice. Because when King Robot sends a force after his own son and the kingdom's strike compromises their vessel's engine room by springing that fuel leak, Goose, who is with the team to follow his warg-like bond with dear sweet friend Oda, Princeling and oh. Hazel offers up his own life to enter the Inferno, to which we can only say, but obviously protect Goose. Goose. All yeah, costs. Goose, stop. No. What are you Goose. doing, Goose? Stop it. Get away. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> but Yuma, disgusted with, as she puts it, the strung out mess that she's become, turns once more to a core belief. That's that the right. drug she's really chasing is a healing balm and ability to distract the world from its pain. This is an incredible sequence here. It, it really is. The, the, the way this is illustrated. Woo. Yeah, the illustration that together with the, with the writing is just it, Unreal. a face slap. Amidst a galaxy of misery, the artist dedicated her life to chasing pleasure, avoiding pain, and helping others do the same. The quote goes, yeah, she wasn't always perfect, but who the hell is? So here's to another victim of this goddamn war. A woman who at least managed to die exactly as she lived. High as fuck. And the way that Staples draws those letters all around Yuma's dying form, just remarkable. Yeah, it looks like it looks like a like a like a poster for the Grateful Dead, like Winterland in like (laughs) 1972. Really incredible. Like the lettering and the it's unbelievable. Really remarkable. Yuma after a blaster bolt to the gut, never lost sight of a belief that she held dear. When something in her own life crumbled, she wanted to be able to carry it so that she could spare someone else. Each new person we welcome into our hearts, Hazel tells us, is a chance to evolve into something radically different than we used to be. But what happens when those people disappear from our lives? What happens, in other words, when one of the foundational pillars of our existence, our reality, shatters? 
Real urgent matters broke Marco and Alana apart, but that doesn't mean that they are stronger on their own. Together, my parents learned to be much more than the sum of their parts, whatever that means, Hazel says. Separately, they were kind of just a mess. And in a bitter twist, when they're finally reunited, it is without Hazel, who, along with Clara, is on the ship that the last revolution spirits away, ultimately, to the robot kingdom, and then land false control. We learn as Marco and Alana stand, shield out, gunpoint, standing over Dengo's form after he sent Hazel and Clara off on their own, that Marco asked Alana to marry him after she told him she'd harm anyone who'd hurt her child. They've been united since the beginning by this shared love and desire to protect, a desire that stems from having so often seen damage inflicted, so often been part of the machinery inflicting it. Quote, there's no graduating from this kind of education, Hazel's narration reads, as they embrace united again at last. Couples just keep growing and changing until they either break up or die. I'll never forget. Oh, my God. I had a girlfriend in high school, and we were going to, we were looking at, like, different colleges or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is kind of sad. And she was just like, why? It's like, either you break up or you get married. We're not getting married. I was like, wow. That hurt? But you're right. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> that really hurt, but you're 100% correct. Wow. Did she ever call you later from outcome? <laughs> she did not. <laughs> <laughs> In Sweet Noreen's classroom, we and Hazel alike see example after example of how the war has torn these children's lives apart. They draw pictures not of happy families or shapes in the clouds or whatever you would expect children that age to draw, but bombs hitting their houses or their own limbs being blasted off. It is crushing. Time has passed. Hazel has grown. She's expressing her sadness by drawing a farting foot. Noreen, (laughs) (laughs) you listen, we all have to express ourselves, you know? Kids love farts. They absolutely love farts. That is true. Noreen, the instincts of an educator, a caretaker, a friend, all coming to the fore, reaches out to Hazel to encourage her to search her feelings, to confide, <laughs> to use the force. Oh, no, okay, wrong podcast, sorry. When Noreen pulls out Leave Me Be, a book that Alana had given to Hazel when she was small, Hazel breaks down in tears, weeps, unable to repress the memory of a time when her family was, if not necessarily conventionally stable, at least together assured in the presence of each other. And we learn as Hazel fills in the ensuing years that one of their captors, Lexus from the last revolution, who was also taken prisoner by the Royal Guard, has become Auntie Lexus in time, an ally, wonderful, a protector. Even though she's no longer wearing her open circuit inspired mask or her Iron Man-esque cosplay gloves, Isabel, we see, is back with Hazel, no longer trapped by sunshine out again using her horror tricks to help hazel and clara <laughs> wherever she can petricor a transgender character and a Rethian prisoner who's dealt with terrible prejudice and who will become a really crucial figure in the story moving forward at this same complex who hazel meets they bond clara is also there having spun the fiction that led them to this detention center rather than a worse fate and she is, as noted, loaded up. She's dived into the culture here at the prison and is absolutely loving life. And, of course, Noreen is present, 
giving Hazel not only that book, but a cupcake for her fourth birthday and really the most precious gift you can receive, something vastly more impactful than any of that, kindness. Hazel, who has seen so precious little of that in her life because of the nature of her family's existence, succumbs almost reflexively to that warmth, to that graciousness. Hazel tells Noreen that she doesn't remember much about her parents other than her father's smell and the fact that her mom gave her not only that book, but and she removes her shirt to reveal her wings to a stunned Noreen. She says, she also gave me these. Man, I can't tell you how I was just, Hazel, no. I know. (laughs) Same. Same. Just anxiety inducing. But you man, it's like. Beautiful wings, too. It must be, you know, you just think about what it must be like for a kid to have to hide something so elemental about themselves all the time. It's notable that Hazel tells us, quote, in some ways, my parents were never closer than in the years after my mom lost me, but reconnected with dad. Their love spawned her and it also became defined by her about Hazel for Hazel. This should be a period of terrible struggle for them. And it absolutely is. They're reunited after a grave transgression. They're searching for their child who they cannot find lost in this immense galaxy and years are passing, but it's also a period of absolute airtight unity of purpose, clear and focused, affirming in its all encompassing grasp. They are not, as Hazel tells us, being intimate. The passion that fuels them has morphed. It happens in real relationships all the time. Passions fade and what's left is either strong enough to sustain it or weak enough to collapse. But for Marco and Alana, This is no small thing. Their physical intimacy was a defining outgrowth and expression of their relationship. Truly. Absolutely. Now their bond is defined by a shared goal to rehabilitate, to repair, to make themselves whole again. How they see themselves, how they see each other. Can they get Hazel back? Alana, a handsomely bearded Marco says. He looks great. (laughs) He does look good. You and I are going to put our family back together, but only if we do it in the spirit in which that family was forged. He turns her gun into a key, and as soon as they find the clue to Hazel's whereabouts, they kiss at last. Unspoken or otherwise, Hazel says in her narration, my parents had always sucked at vows. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Incredible. That includes, of course, vowing to be done with four. No longer a prince, now merely a sir. The indignity. Incredible evolution under like that four is undergoing oh, in these in these Absolutely. chapters. A little, little bit of the Jamie Lannister, as we said. Just a touch. He's marooned with Goose and Frendo and Squire, nay Princeling, on the uninhabited world where Marco and Alana left them. What is it you reprobates are after this time for, asks. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. He's naturally reluctant to help. He's with his son at last. And he's yeah, also, he's- as he notes, lost all standing with the the coalition, just practically yeah. speaking. But as Goose says, you gotta practice what you preach, my guy. You're always telling him about the code of chivalry. <laughs> Calling him out on his bullshit and his own hypocrisy. I love it. Squire, very eager to help. Ready for an adventure. Desperately wants an adventure. How do Alana and Marco ultimately convince Four to leave Squire and co behind for their safety and to help Marco and Alana find their own kid to restore their family? By threatening Four's family. A location tip to King Robot's ear. And that's just a wrap on the chivalry lessons and the arrow hunts right there. As Hazel notes, 
Once again, astutely, keenly observing human nature here. I've found that cultures often clash for the same reasons that people do. It's not because we're so different from each other. It's because we're all so goddamn alike. It's uh, there are so many <gasps> oh, like man. the quotable line to page ratio in Saga is startling. Petricor stumbles upon the scene of Hazel and Noreen, and like the teacher, chooses to help Hazel. It doesn't have to be this way for either of them. Passing along intelligence about Hazel's parentage could surely have netted Noreen improved circumstances and Petricor perhaps even freedom. But Noreen's job is to nurture and mold. Petricor has seen firsthand how discrimination looks and feels. They can shield Hazel from that kind of hardship. Even though Petricor initially forms the wrong hypothesis that Hazel's parents must be a landfalling soldier who forced himself upon a woman from Wreath, Hazel accepts the help gladly. If I'd learned one thing by that point in my education, it was that when anybody in these cruel worlds offers a helping hand, you shut your fucking mouth and grab it. <laughs> Noreen, meanwhile, is not just kind of heart, but stout of mind. Quote, you represent everything I was hired to help educate, a wreath child who can leave these walls not completely despising landfall. She sees that Hazel represents a real kind of change, a kind of chance to repair and rebuild, and that is beyond rare. She is also practical, and she knows Hazel will never be safe unless others band together to help her. And she's willing to be one of the people who tries. Even though Hazel and Marco and Alana have been apart for ages, they are really amazingly in sync here. Noreen is helping Hazel plot her escape, just as Marco and Alana armed with a crash helm that they stole, because they're just, they're, they're thieves now. Yes. <laughs> Doing what they gotta do. And a disguise for four as Count Robot the 60th, a, a mortifying proposition for him. Yes. Disgusting. They're planning their prison break-in. <laughs> He's appalled. And because there's no safer place than a landfallian detention center except maybe Hogwarts or the Winterfell Crypts or the Jedi Temple of Coruscant. Security falls instantly, <laughs> easily, for force bit, lowering the membrane, letting in the cosplaying count. But the landfallian guards inside, they're on edge, more so than usual after, quote, Whatever broke out on Fang, as the guard ah. tells Maureen. Ah, strife on Fang. A nice simultaneous nod back to Sophie's roots for book one and a nice tease for the dismaying horrors that await in book three. Clara helps cause a diversion and just enough violence to create a runway for Marco, who's led to them by Petricor. Mom, Marco says, you, you have <laughs> tattoos. Incredible. Hazel pops out of the box in which Noreen was carrying her and Marco and his daughter see each other Ugh, at last. This is and incredible. What I love about this sequence from Marco's tattoo line to the way that he doesn't quite know what to say or do now that he's finally seen Hazel is again how true that feels. Like you don't just launch into perfect prose and poetry in yeah. this highly anticipated moment in your life. You're awkward, you're unsure. He takes out Punk Kunk, which he has been carrying for her all this time. And he's worried that she won't remember him, but she runs into his arms. Daddy, 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 daddy. It is like heart melting. Clara, though, she's got business to discuss. Shocking stuff. No time for our emotions. It's actually a very sweet moment with Clara here, but she's not coming. 
She's found belonging of her own community, of her own purpose, as she tells her son. She tells him something else, a softer side of Clara than we typically see here. She tells him she's proud. Seeing you become the man you are has been the greatest privilege of my life. And I know your father felt the same. Remember the absolute dismay that she exhibited when she first learned the choice that Marco had made about who to be with, what life to lead. He thought for some time that protecting his new family meant sacrificing his old one. But it doesn't have to be that way. They are building something stronger together on a foundation that they've crafted anew with commitment, with hard work and care. And if they're lucky, if they try, they know that they can keep building from there, no matter how hard it gets. I'd never fell a female who's expecting Petricor who <laughs> sneaks in the second crash on window to escape the detention center, tells Alana, I can smell it from here. You're pregnant. Woo! Wow. Let's talk about Princey Prince. Prince Robot the Fourth, his son Squire. And Dango. Your dude Dango. Hey, d- don't don't do that. The opening pages <laughs> of issue 19 reinforce that from the moment we come into the world, we are fighting against something. Gravity, the weight of our family name, the burdens of people's expectations on us, our society's expectations on us. Mere moments after the princess gives birth to the princeling, the little lad begins to suffer the consequences of decisions that other people have made. His journey, like Hazel's, will center in many respects on charting a new course that defies convention and frees him from the constraints of so many established norms and expectations. But long before he can pick up a bow or wander a moor with goose, he's losing things he doesn't yet know he has. The robot kingdom, like every other pebble in the galaxy, is caught up in and in many ways defined by the war between Landfall and Wreath. And while that made some very rich and powerful, it casts others aside to swell the ranks of the war's victims. And sometimes those victims aren't pocked with bullet holes or sliced by swords or charred by magic spells. Sometimes they're just defeated by their standing, the thing the world thinks they should be. In the robot kingdom, this manifests for all to see, the screen on one's head conveying a cast-like standing. If you have a color screen of a more modern model, like a flat screen, you are royalty. If you have a black and white, you are a peasant. You are a working person. The robot king, as we'll see, has a glistening bit of splendor upon his shoulders, a heavy, uncomfortable, burdensome reflection of his responsibility, not unlike the Iron Throne. Quote, it's not a seat where a man can rest at ease, Stannis says in Storm of Swords. But while King Robot may not be able to carry his big screen with ease, the message it conveys to his subjects, including his own son, Prince Robot IV, is clear. I am in charge. I'm on top. I have the biggest screen. Man, this fucking guy. On the opposite extreme of that stands Dango, a working class android who mops the royal halls. His head is only remarkable because of how it positions him as, in the words of Hazel's narration, a commoner. The screen is small with dials, a black and white display, an analog robot in a digital age. Dango will commit true atrocities over the course of these issues. And yet his introduction, despite the menacing skull visible on the screen as he's ordered to clean up Princess Robot's birthing room, is a flattering association, kind of triggering this dissonance about how we're supposed to process his actions right away. He's linked to Hazel, who tells us, 
Not everyone is lucky enough to win the nobility lottery, of course, but that doesn't mean the rest of us are mere serfs. We're commoners, and our castles are made of air. Now, those associations are quickly and gravely complicated by Dango's acts. Awful. As Vile. Four sinks into a sexual stupor on Sextillion, unaware that his son has been born, that the family he so badly wanted to start is blooming in real time, Dango enters Princess Robot's chambers. Crushingly, heartbreakingly, she thinks it is four, and her face displays a heart. They really do love each other. Everyone needs to be someone else sometimes, Hazel says in her narration. And Dago's entire life has confirmed that truism. He derisively identifies himself as, quote, one of your lowly subjects and shames her for not knowing his name, despite his two years of service to her. He says he'll never harm the child. He was a father himself, and he tells her about his son, Jokum, who at four years old took ill from drinking the village stream water and died after the robot kingdom doctors failed to help him, poor and uninsured as he was. And he stabs Princess Robot in the face as her newborn as her newborn sits in her arms. Jesus. In Game of Thrones, Littlefinger tells Sansa there's no justice in the world. Not unless we make it. And in time, she will parrot those words back to him, as aware as anyone in the realm of the horrors that they could spawn when people spew them as a way to justify their ends. Dango is trying to make his own justice here, but in doing so, he's inflicting the same catastrophe upon another family that the kingdom's way of life inflicted upon him, death and loss, fractures and despair. He wants to turn Princeling into a king who can, quote, help every last child in the robot kingdom regardless of bloodline. And completely divorced from his methods, that is a noble goal, but his particular pursuit of that goal is obviously anything but... We don't know if Princess Robot had anything to do with Jokum's lack of care or the quality of the drinking water, but it doesn't matter to Dango. She represents, and so to him is definitionally a part of, the thing that he is rebelling against, and so she must pay. He doesn't consider or does not care about how the child he's sworn not to harm will pay in something other than physical violence inflicted against his own person, how the events of that moment will go on to inform and define the course of Princeling's life. For face screen still cracked from his misadventures at Heist Quietest Lighthouse, is pulled out of his dream of peace and happiness and beach strolls with his family to learn that his son was born 21 days ago and that his wife Man. has passed. Like all stories involving real princes and princesses, Hazel's narration reads, there wasn't a lot of happily ever after. For four, that manifests not only in the horror of his wife's, mur his wife's murder and son's kidnapping, but in his father's completely detached and dispassionate and cold response. He has no empathy for four as either his own son or as a soldier. He has no respect for him. In place of comfort, he lectures him. Your failure to capture the landfallian traitor and her lover has badly harmed our relationship with the coalition. We are sorry for whatever you experienced at war, but it does not excuse your increasingly hideous behavior. He tells Four that his dead brother, Duke, was, quote, a true champion of this realm. Four has lost the family he sought to build, and he can't count on the family from which he came for anything but misery and impediment and criticism. Tolstoy famously wrote in Anna Karenina that happy families are all like every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. 
But Saga routinely asks us to remember that those circumstances and contexts might differ. One family on the run, struggling to earn a paycheck, another royal and gilded, surrounded by wealth and possibilities and potential. So many of us are united by our shared ability to disappoint the ones we are closest to. Oi. Now, Pops might have let four down, but you can always trust Gail in a pinch. <laughs> and he is there to tell him that Dango shipped off to the Uncanny Valley. He's there, we learn, for the open circuit, a path to broadcasting his vitriol to the world. Now, Yuma, after watching two of her cohorts blown to bits in front of her, she offers him, quote, something much more valuable than airtime. Hazel. Yuma's redemption comes eventually, as we, as we discussed, but this is a really devastating low here, a seed of doubt, not just about her in particular, but more generally about the loyalty of other people that is kind of hard for the characters or you as a reader to shake once it's in your mind. You know, can you really rely on someone else fully? Marco and Alana fled to Gardenia specifically to take shelter in Yuma's orbit to trust in Heist's history with her, her work at the circuit. And Saga is often about what people will do to help each other, to save each other. That Michael Eleanor, what do we owe to each other idea that we love talking about with The Good Place. But it is also about the inverse of that. It is about just as often what people will do to help themselves at the expense of someone else. Ultimately, when someone makes their way back from that, as Yuma will, there's a special kind of faith and assurance that stems from that shame. But it can't fully erase the letdown sprung into existence in, in, in the first place. Dango doesn't believe it's possible to put his own life back together now that his son has died. And so he's focused on doing so for others like him, so they never know his pain. But he doesn't see that a way forward hinges on anything but destruction of everything in his path. Mm -hmm. He's called in the last revolution. Resistance fighters, in his mind and in theirs, mm -hmm. terrorists in Alana's, and indeed terrorists indeed. Yes. It doesn't seem that ambiguous. They blew up a daycare center on landfall, Alana shrieks. Dango's brought them to their hideout to give them Hazel a weapon in their war against landfall and wreath. This is everything Marco and Alana have fought to avoid. Hazel, the product of their love for each other and unflinching commitment to each other, falling into the hands of the people who want to tear them apart simply because of the threat their very existence poses to their war. What do the last revolution who worked to tear other families apart use as a recruiting tactic? Quote, they will say and do anything to make you feel like you're a part of their family, Alana tells mm -hmm. Dingo. They're like non-comedic versions of the emotional vampires and what we do in the shadows, feeding off others' despair. And of course, horribly, it is a very effective tactic. If you're driven to madness and rage, impotent rage because of what you've lost, mm -hmm. you're going to be drawn in by people telling you that they can help you get back what you've lost. Now, Alana, interestingly, really does understand at, at the core what is driving Dango. She would do anything to protect her child, too. As a mother, she says to him, I sympathize with everything you've done since you lost him. But sometimes the great laments in life look like this. The person who might understand you might be able to help you navigate your grief is the one that you've set yourself against. And it's really hard to figure out your way back from that. How could he have forgotten, Hazel asks us, after Queen, the captain of the fourth cell, has embraced Dango as a fellow in this fight, everything he learned as a father. Now, ultimately, 
We'll see that Dango hasn't, though it will obviously be too late at that point. It's too dangerous, he tells Alana, about the idea of coming back to their side trying to escape. I have the princeling to consider now. His pawn, his prop, has turned into his purpose. Mm-hmm. And that purpose is at odds with the last revolution that he brought in. They are seeking to trade a child, Hazel, for a thousand imprisoned members of their movement. And good old Vez, haven't seen Vez in a minute, has talked herself into stomaching the arrangement with them, but draws the line fully at the idea of working with Dango or any, quote, soulless object like him. The last revolution on Loyal agrees without hesitation to cut Dango loose. But Clara jumps in front of the blade because war, the desire to protect the children, have made very strange, very quick bedfellows of these enemies in a moment of mortal peril. Dango makes his choice as well, shooting off Queen's head and holding off the rest of the revolution so that Hazel and Clara and Alana can escape. Earlier, Goose told Yuma, it's like Mr. Heist always said, a fella is more than his worst three days. Oh, God, Goose, just what a treasure in every moment that he is with us. The best. Dango did hideous, unforgivable things, but he died after freeing Clara and Hazel and finding Alana to try to help her too. And by channeling a truth that Hazel tells us back, quote, Ask a child's guardian what it takes to be good at their jobs, and most will answer with a single word, sacrifice. That sacrifice does not come without severe comeuppance. Dango doesn't get the privilege of feeling good at the end, not after what he has done. Fuck your dead kid, Alana shouts, pistol-wepping Dango in the head. Tough look for our girl here. Hazel lost rage and all that, but it's just a very tough thing to say. That's really rough. Very, very, very ruthless and cold. And minutes later, four arrives, not even letting Dengo finish telling him about his son, Jokum, before blasting a hole through his head. My boy, four says, and the instant he's killed Dengo and scooped up Princeling, my baby boy. His love for Squire is so all-consuming that it helps to, albeit very slowly, melt his Mm -hmm. cold robot heart. I realize this is the last thing one is ever supposed to say, he tells Alana after Marco uses the helm to flee the rocket ship in search of Hazel and Clara. But I have some idea what you must be going through. He also saw his family torn apart, and he felt the healing balm of part of it, at least, knitting itself back together. And he continues, and I wish your family success. Oh, four. Let's quickly chat about the brand, Sophie Gwen, our dear darling lion cat. Even when carrying a decapitated head, a cutie. <laughs> the best. After the brand and sweet boy learned from Goose that Alana and Co. were in fact on Quietus back in the day, the brand tracks the Will's old ship, which has taken Sophie and Gwen and Lion Cat on their hunt for the healing of Formula 9763. It is, as Sophie says, a quest. Your name is Sophie? asked the brand, aka OG Sophie. That's her name. Billy's sibling. The will gave it to me. New Sophie replies, he gave me everything. And this is like a sweet, tender moment in a part of the story that is about to get like impossibly dark. Yes. So hang on to it while you can. Yeah. Hold on to these moments of feeling empathy for the will because they are fleeting, folks. They They are fleeting. Like like Lion Cat with that new hunk of head just vanishing into the distance. Cue a new unexpected team up, folks, and we always love a team up. To Demonand we go, homeland of Cram's fave, the stock, and house 
of ample bursts of flaming hot dragon juice. The uh, <laughs> seminal ingredient in the elixir to heal the will. Hello. <laughs> the will who, by the way, is dreaming through his coma about his uh, vivid sexual escapades with the stock, but not just the sex. The Zach Cram <laughs> will never forget these pages. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, this is Zach is also still dreaming of these moments, though not in quite the same way the Will is. <laughs> the Will is, is not just reliving the physical thrill, but also the emotional baggage. The time that she kicked him out after he froze. And I feel compelled to note, just on the brink of bringing her to climax. Come on, my guy. When she interrupts, they're fucking with a mention of family, specifically wanting kids. This section also gives us the phrase that is burned into my brain now. Put it in my spinneret. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Incredible. (laughs) Listen, this is a sex positive podcast, you know? It's absolutely positive. And listen, be safe out there, but have your fun. That was in the throes of passion. She didn't really mean it. It was just a thing to say, a transgressive thing to say. Anyway, when our new team set out, Gwen championed Sophie's right to join them. Sophie became my duly sanctioned page last year, she says, and she has the legal right to follow me anywhere, including a theater of war. When she said that, she probably didn't envision... Uh, the theater of war to be a bath of boiling dragon piss. This is rough. But alas, life is a strange thing and it leads you where it will. And you don't (laughs) always have the necessary tools on hand. There's nothing in here but condoms and old receipts. (laughs) Gwen shouts of the wills of the pouches on Will's old work belt. So good. While the dragon brood attacks, incredible stuff. Our dude is like Colin from Love Actually. Chuck a block full of condoms. <laughs> Chuck a block full of condoms. Thanks to a handy tip from Halvor, the stock's equally freaky hot brother. He looks great. At least the top half of him. That's where all the eyes are, though, you know? <laughs> oh, God. Our gang makes their way to the smiling cave. And we discover why it is called that, where they find the lone male dragon on Devimond curled up on his back, dick in his own mouth, legs cocked like pistols in the air in a state of eye rolling bliss and in total peace with the world. And listen, in the dragon's defense, no one would want to be interrupted in the midst of such a act nor from a post-masturbatory snooze. As Gwen is marveling at the molten semen, the dragon is just spewed in, in incredible amounts into the world. Quote, I don't know what's more impressive, the velocity or the volume? She and the brand realizes that Sophie has snuck off to grab the goo in her wineskin. And when the brand runs to try to protect her, the dragon opens its eyes and pop. The brand is <laughs> chopped in half. So ends the brand, folks. <laughs> Very tough stuff. <sighs> Gotta say, getting bitten in half by a dragon while hunting down his semen is definitely one of the rougher ways to go. Not a ending that is 
full of dignity. (laughs) Not at all. And yet she wasn't shooting darts into targets on a Lancer assignment when all of this was transpiring. These were her vacation days, remember? She's working. Yes. She was working not to tear down, but to restore, to restore her brother's life, to restore her family's integrity, to restore her own sense of achievement. So RIP to the brand. We mourn you alongside Sweet Boy. And when the will sees Sweet Boy after Sophie and Gwen and Lion Cat revive him, that is how he learns that his sister has died, recognizing her sidekick. And the grief and horror overwhelms him so that he instantly casts out the people who just spent years trying to save him. Nobody knew, Hazel says, exactly what kind of nightmare had been awakened that evening. But in time, my parents Uh. will find out. (sighs) Chills. Things fall apart for one person, for one family, and then that misery cascades. Let's touch on our intrepid reporting Mm. duo, Upshur and Doff. As soon as Upshur and Doff, the reporting duo from Planet Jetsam who worked for the tabloid, the Hebdomadal, discovered the Landfallian soldier whose hand Marco cut off in book one, they became tangled in this web the web of this story. Now, we're not exactly asked to warm to them right away, I'm sure, after all. Response to getting shot by telling Doff, just keep snapping pics. This is a wards bait. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> but it's just... <laughs> yeah. But nothing is ever black and white in Saga. I'm sure and Doff may be portrayed as ambitious award chasers as much as noble pursuers of the truth, but they've also suffered from society's mores. They're a gay couple, and their planet Jetsam is extremely intolerant towards homosexuality, which special agent Gale reminds them of in book one in, in not even thinly veiled fashion while imploring them to spike the story they are working on. Their people would tell them that they're not supposed to be together, but they know that's foolish and that's wrong because being together is right. It feels right. In that sense, in other words, they're no different from Marco and Alana. They start thinking of themselves as a target. In time, they realize what they truly are, allies. But as is so often the case in this story, that road to eventual kinship will be littered with destruction. They celebrate the brand's death because it means that they're free of that restrictive and bargone hold that she put on them in book one. Upshur has not given up on the, quote, literal story of the century, of the millennium in Upshur. <laughs> knows to start their hunt in the Uncanny Valley because he caught Zipless, a.k.a. Alana, quoting Heist, as we mentioned earlier, in an open sloppy, circus sloppy, sloppy. Really bad. Tough look for our girl. Just as Four followed the Heist lead to Quietus, the journalists know that D. Oswald's work united our pair and plan to follow it now. Can't keep making the same mistakes here. Doff just wants to leave the family alone at least at this point in the story. It's what he'd want for himself, after all. Maybe it's just two people who like to screw, even though everybody thinks it's gross or immoral, he says. And exactly, they just want to be together when others are saying they shouldn't be. But up sure, he's chasing that Pulitzer already in his mind. And he has another <laughs> lead. Ginny, thanks to her classified ad for her, quote, Brave Warrior from Wreath. Ginny. How about opening a bottle of wine and spending some time with Henry, okay? Or just find another another, uh, victim to lure into your web of intrigue and just (laughs) let this go already. 
you know, Marco is, uh, he's a special one. Marco, we learn from their visit to Ginny, as again, her husband Henry is just feet away, called Ginny from a payphone in Outcome to check in. He reached out to apologize, she proudly tells the journalists. So now Upshur and Doff know where to go next. They head to Outcome, where they find that fractured dragon bone ship. And they find something else too, the Will, who is high on heroin, a drug we learn that makes you hallucinate that your first love is there with you, and thus he is engaged in a constant conversation with an imaginary stock who is not exactly nurturing his best impulses there. Sweet boy now by his side. His sister's sidekick is now his own. And the Will recruits in the way that only he knows how. A quick lance through the shoulder for Doff. A baseless interrogation about whether they know where four is. And then a sales pitch that is not at all a pitch. You fuckers work for me now. That's what a what a what a subtle operator the will is. That work manifests in <gasps> Doff calling Zlot for the location of Four's old hideout with his princess, where they suspected he may be again. Zlot doesn't want payment; he wants intel, and Doff provides it by outing a councilman. He's filled with derision as he does it, but he still does it, deplorably disrupting someone else's life in order to further his own. And now Upshur is the one with buyer's remorse. How many lives are we going to help this maniac destroy, he asks. All I did was tell the truth, Upshur. You're the one who says that's what matters, right? But remember Hazel's words from earlier in book two. Everyone loses something in a war. But the first casualty is always the truth. Often your soul's not far behind. The will, a shell of his former self, reminds us of this. Zlot's tip pans out and he finds Squire holding him over a cliff, the stalk specter whispering words of murderous encouragement in his ear. Hurt the boy, Goose says, and Goose will chop you deep. <gasps> oh my love God, my, is that Goose's love music? Goose. <laughs> love my little Goosey? Legendary showing. He, quote, swears on the buried treasure of the house of Goose, and obviously I need we, to know, so, uh, spin off immediately spin for off. Goose. Come on, <laughs> spin please off immediately give it to us. for Goose. Print the pages. <laughs> and when sweet boy darts Frendo in a really heinous bit of creature on creature crime here, Goose launches at the well with with the chopper that he got in the original exchange for Frendo. I just love that he calls it a chopper. He do. It's so good. Slicing off the fingers of the will's right hand, leading the will to punch him in the faithfully. head in a truly dismaying moment. Protect Goose at all costs. Yes, very faithfully. The will's brain morphs here. The heroine giving way from the stock to the brand, who softens him, calls him back to his humanity for one of the final times in his arc. We remember for just a moment here who the Will used to be and could be again yeah. if he had that kind of love around him to help him find his way. I miss you, he tells the brand. I miss everybody. That's so But sad. he doesn't have that anymore. He is alone. And that hand injury, that fateful hand injury, as you just noted, is no small thing to carry. It is the appendage that the will will now have to replace with a metal hand, which, when it's twisted by his book three battle with Marco, he will then use these sharp shards of to punch a hole through Marco's heart. Because again, even after things come together, they can still once again fall apart 
truly, and I really mean Whoa. this, among the more shocking deaths in horrible any work of fiction that I have consumed in the last several years. Shocking. I mean, you were the one who recommended the story to me, so yes. obviously you were the first I reached out to, and as you yeah. as you recall, I was inconsolable. It doesn't seem like it should be right. Whew. Jason? Yes. My grandmother always loved a good story. But not everybody does. So please gather Clara and the house guests and head to the lighthouse. Teach us some of what we need to know about challenged books. A wise man once said that a mind needs a book like a sword needs a whetstone. <laughs> books are wondrous the things best. that sharpen and shape minds. And no surprise then that as long as books have been around, some of them, like a nighttime smoke from our tale saga, have been viewed as dangerous, obscene, subversive, corruptive influences on malleable minds. Now, with the understanding that a comprehensive list would be impossible unless Steve suddenly lets us run for three hours. Come on, Steve. Let us do it. And also noting that we are going to ignore just flat out offensive books. Let's talk about controversial works of fiction. Tropic of Cancer, first published by Obelisk Press in Paris in 1934, is a semi-autobiographical novel based on the author Henry Miller's own experiences as an expatriate living day-to-day, hand-to-mouth in France. Obelisk, at the time, was a publisher known for taking on material considered too risque, too controversial in America and Great Britain. And Tropic was absolutely that. The novel features frank depictions of sexual debauchery that were considered pretty shocking at the time. Apparently, his initial idea for the title, Zachary Cram tells us, was crazy cock. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) The U.S. Customs Service. Time for a reprinting. Yeah, as crazy cock. The U.S. Customs Service banned importation of the book. And for the next 30 years, those who wanted to read it had to smuggle it into the country. And the illicit outlaw mystique of the book really colored its reputation. During that time, Miller's own reputation as an author soared. Fellow writers, cultural critics, and academics sung his praises. And by 1954, UCLA began collecting the author's papers and other materials related to his life and career. But when Grove Press finally offered Miller a sizable advance and published Tropic in the U.S. in 1961, various states and municipalities banned it for obscene content. In a decision by the New York State Court of Appeals, Judge John F. Scalepi called the book, quote, dirt for dirt's sake. In 1964, the Supreme Court ruled that the novel was officially not obscene, but that didn't stop challenges to the book. Pennsylvania Judge Michael Musmano, in a 1966 opinion, blasted Tropic as, quote, not a book. It is a cesspool, an open (laughs) sewer, a pit of putrefaction, a slimy gathering of all that is rotten. I've seen that tweet about binge mode before. (laughs) Grove Press would end up spending over $100,000 defending the book in court. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It is probably notable, as we mentioned back in our Chamber of Secrets pod, that the second book featured a mysterious journal, which impressed an evil influence on all those who read it. Sorcerer's Stone was first published in the UK in June in 1997, and then the US in 1998. Over the year that followed, the book became, simply put, a sensation that transformed 
Publishing, the story of a young boy who discovers that he is a magician, part of a hidden world of magic, and his struggle against the evil Lord Voldemort captured the imagination of young readers around the world. However, some of their parents were not so enthused. The book was challenged around the country by various groups concerned that it was promoting the occult, witchcraft, and even Satanism. Quote, whenever Margaret Cusack opens Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, her fifth grade class at Ledgeview Elementary School in this Buffalo suburb breaks into cheers, reads a November 1st, 1999 story in the New York Times titled, Don't Give Us Little Wizards, the Anti-Potter Parents Cry. Quote, as the teacher pauses at chapter's ends, the students beg for more. If the bell rings, they refuse to budge. Except for Eric Polliner. Eric, whose parents describe themselves as born-again Christians, Take Mrs. Cusack's reaching for the book on her desk as his cue to slip from the room. He retires to the hallway or studies alone in the library until she stops reading seven, 10, 15 minutes, sometimes twice a day. End quote. The book continues to garner challenges, according to the American Library Association. Between 2000 and 2005, no book had been challenged more. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom, a classic. Judy Bloom's iconic book, her third about a 12-year-old girl and her journey into puberty, was first published in 1970. And the story resonated with young girls which and has for generations and included scenes that have entered the cultural zeitgeist, like when Margaret, concerned about her breast size, performs a exercise while repeating, I must, I must, I must increase my bust. Women's bodies is a subject that someone in power somewhere Usually a dude is looking to control. Additionally, Margaret is from an interfaith family and spends a good portion of the story trying to decide between Judaism and Christianity. Frank sex talk and religion is basically the formula for getting a book challenged. But the 1980s, Are You There, God? was among the most challenged books in the U.S., according to the ALA. Bloom, whose books Deanie, Blubber, and Forever are also frequently banned, has become an active voice against literary censorship. Fifty years later, the book continues to entertain and comfort young readers with its depiction of the timeless trial of the journey toward young adulthood. Goosebumps. Do 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 do. The series by R.L. Stein. Do 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 do. The best. Quote. It is a badge of honor to have people try to ban your books from schools and school libraries only because it means your books have become popular and are being noticed. Unpopular books seldom get banned, R.L. Stein told The Atlantic in 2012 in a very heist-like comment. <laughs> Stein's teen horror stories, which debuted in 1992 with Welcome to Dead House, has consistently been among the most challenged books, again, according to the ALA. But to paraphrase our friend Heist, it has only boosted his sales. In the days before Scholastic got its Hogwarts invitation letter to Harry Potter riches, Mr. Stein's book accounted for, get this, 15% of the publisher's sales. <laughs> Remarkable. Concerned groups accused the books and their eye-popping and occasionally gory covers of promoting disrespect of adults, conveying satanic imagery, and inspiring kids to imagine horrors. Which, yeah, I mean, there are horror books. In 1997, <laughs> the New York Times wrote, quote, Still, so public have anti-goosebumps protests become that C-SPAN decided earlier this year to broadcast one school district's hearing to ban the books. The Anoka Hennepin, Minnesota school district's video is still online at C-SPAN. The hearing featured numerous student speakers. One elementary school student, Trisha, gave one of the most savage backhanded compliments in support of the book, saying, I don't think they should ban the books because I don't think they're really scary. And if other kids do, I don't think they should read them. Bang. Amazing. How about Saga? Saga, yes. Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. 2014 was a banner year for comics. 
Per a 2015 story in io9, more comics were challenged in 2014 than any year on record. And one of those was the topic of this episode of Binge Mode Saga. And if you've read the comic, you can probably guess why. Reasons given at the time include strong sexual content, graphic mm-hmm. nudity, uh, cover art featuring a lot of breastfeeding, and quote, anti-family agenda, which absolutely makes zero Get sense since family is the premise of the story. <laughs> Ridiculous. We could probably throw in depictions of a giant, uh, disgusting ball sack dripping with gross <gasps> cheese-like material Bar. and, uh, you know, depictions of a self-flating dragon as things that probably trigger groups who enjoy censoring books. In 2013, confusion over the Apple Store's guidelines led to a kerfuffle in which it briefly seemed as if Apple was refusing to allow Issue 12 for purchase through iOS's apps. This, despite similar content not being flagged in the past. However, the issue turned out to be Comixology misinterpreting out Apple's policies. In a statement, Comixology CEO David Steinberger said, quote, We did not interpret the content in question as involving any particular sexual orientation, and frankly, that would have been completely irrelevant consideration under any circumstances. Given this, it should be clear that Apple did not reject saga number 12. The issue was available on the app store shortly thereafter. Oh my goodness. So many. Jason. Yes. Yes. Admit it. You're probably a very different person in the podcast studio than you are at home. That's true. Everyone needs to be someone else sometimes. And everyone needs some reading recommendations. So yes, Let's gaze like the stock's eight eyes upon eight of your favorite comic book recommendations for readers who Let's are enjoying it. Saga. Take us through it, man. Take Let's us, go. Take us right back to the lighthouse. Give us some lightning round rapid fire comic recos here. The thing that I love about comic books is just the boundless possibilities of the format. They're not limited by CGI by technology. They're not limited by anything but imagination. And I think that's what I love about Saga. And that's what I love about these eight examples. Number one, Why the Last Man, published on Vertigo Comics, Brian K. Vaughn and Pierre Guerra, soon to be an FX series by the same name. Yorick Brown, an amateur magician and escape artist, and his pet capuchin monkey, Ampersand, are the only males to survive a global calamity that wipes out every mammal carrying the Y chromosome in basically an instant. What follows is an international adventure as Yorick, pursued by intelligence agencies, radicals, ninjas, and protected by the mysterious Agent 355, search for the secret behind Yorick's survival. Brian K. Vaughan has written many great tales, Saga included. And Why the Last Man is probably his most well-known story, and Mm -hmm. certainly among his best. Full of twists, shocking deaths, heartbreaking longing. It is a much darker, to this point, and unforgiving tale compared to Saga. And while certainly the setup, a a shockingly deadly calamity that throws the planet's governments and economies into chaos might be triggering at this particular moment is very much worth your time. Number two, Runaways on Marvel. Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona. A a good setup for a story is a thing of simple beauty. And the setup for Runaways is a perfect elevator pitch. What if you discovered your parents were supervillains? Six kids, Alex, Chase, Gertrude, Carolina, Molly, and Nico are living pretty privileged lives in Los Angeles. Their parents are successful actors, business people, regular seeming middle class folk who just happen to get together once a year and engage in a little human sacrifice. Shocked. (laughs) 
the kids realize their parents are evil masterminds, aliens, dark magicians, super scientists. They raid their parents' secret lairs and go on the run after stealing high-tech equipment, weapons, magical items, and a dinosaur. It's a coming-of-age story rich in action, drama, and romance, and some appalling betrayals that has since become a Hulu show of the same name. Number three, The Wicked and the Divine, Image Comics, by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. Every 90 years comes the recurrence. Twelve deities from across human culture and history merge with 12 respective human beings. By the recurrence of the 2010s, these 12 gods and goddesses known as the Pantheon are pop cultural phenomenons, objects of adulation and envy brimming with power and influence. Their fans will do anything to be close to them, and their detractors will sometimes stop at nothing to halt them. It's a thrilling, diverse, and insightful mashup of fantasy and pop culture that is heavily influenced aesthetically and thematically by David Bowie. That'll make sense when you read it. Side note, Jamie McKelvey, absolutely one of my favorite working artist. His style is is built on these beautiful clean lines with a real kind of DIY zine feel reminiscent of the work of the Hernandez brothers on their iconic indie comic Love and Rockets. More about that in a second. Number four, Ecstatics. Marvel Comics, Peter Milligan, Mike Allred, and Laura Allred. Without a doubt, Ecstatics is one of the weirdest titles ever published by Marvel and an absolute cult classic. In the early 2000s, Marvel was finding its footing again after the industry crisis and crash of the mid-90s and the company's subsequent bankruptcy. It was an intensely creative time in which Marvel was taking a lot of swings and sometimes getting some really great hits and laying the groundwork for the world-spanning success that we see now. Ecstatic was one of those swings, and while it was not exactly a hit at the time, it has become something really notable, peculiar, and fascinating. The title, which grew out of the series X-Force, features a wild collection of mutant heroes like Dead Girl, part zombie, part ghost, Dupe, the beautiful cutie Dupe, a green Uh potato-looking creature who speaks in this alien language, Anarchist, (laughs) their leader, Uh. who has acid sweat. That's his acid sweat. (gasps) You go, girl, a teleporter with narcolepsy, to name only a few. The story has only tangential connections to Marvel continuity, which means It's the perfect thing to just pick up and read and dive into. You don't have to know anything else. It is a a ripping kind of commentary on the format of superhero stories and comics in general. And it's I I would describe it as something like community meets X-Men. Really fun, really funny and really great with incredible great sales pitch. Yeah, with incredible art by Mike Alred, who is just one of my favorites, like like Jack Kirby come again. Oh, we three number five on Vertigo Comics by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly. Ugh. Now, Mal, yeah. I want to warn you if you ever decide oh, to God. read this. I can already tell from the first sentence you have here that I can't handle this. Think Watership Down meets the Iron Giant. I'm already not do- capable of this. <laughs> yes. A dog- Though, as you know, Watership I- Down is one of my all-time favorite stories. <sighs> yes. As is, it is mine as well. A dog, a cat, and a rabbit. No, are part of a horrifying advanced weapons research experiment. Escape from their lab and go on the run in search of a peaceful life, free from torture and pain, in search of a home. There's a it's inc- this like incredibly heartbreaking panel. So they they are like surgically fused with this like weapon armor, and they're cute. You just see their cute little animal heads, and as soon as they escape, they, this little bubble appears over them, and they say. They just say home. Just that one word, home. They're looking oh, for home. God. 
pursued by the military and, and confused about what they are and what they've become, the three animals show a heartwarming and heartbreaking loyalty and love for each other that is oh truly God. inspiring. Now, it's only a three-issue story, so it's kind of like a perfect kind of nibble. And I promise, Mallory, to you, I promise you, it turns out okay. It turns out Buddy. okay, even though there are heartbreaking moments along the way. Oh, my God. That sounds really wonderful, but also painful and hard. It's painful and it is hyper-violent. Descender on Image Comics by Jeff Lemire and Dustin Wynn. Gigantic robots called Harvesters attack the nine core worlds of the UGC, the United Galactic Council. Billions of lives are lost in the calamity. But the Harvesters' devastation seems to spare humanity's robot workforce, who are employed as nannies, helpers, and companions. Like IG-11. Yes. Fearing a threat in their midst, anti-robot fervor sweeps the planets, resulting in the widespread genocide of robots. Ten years later, on a far-flung moon, Tim-21 one of the Tim line of robotic child companions produced for people who could not have or have lost their own children comes back online. Hidden in the AI code of the Tim robots is the secret to why the harvesters attacked. Special shout out to Dustin Wynn's stunning watercolor art. It is beautiful and noteworthy. One of the best image comics out there. Number seven, Love in Rockets, Fantagraphics, Gilberto, Jamie, and Mario Hernandez. Initially self-published by the Hernandez Brothers, the title was picked up by Fantagraphics in 1982 and ran until 1996. It's, it's kind of impossible to define Love and Rockets, which contains numerous serialized stories, mostly created by Berto and Jamie, independently of one another, also shorter absurdist pieces, sight gags, and more. It is an icon of the independent comic scene, and for me, the book that made me realize there's a world outside of Marvel and DC and Dark Horse and Top Cow. The two primary arcs that you're going to want to focus on are uh, Jamie's Locus arc set in the Los Angeles punk rock scene and Gilberto's more romantic Heartbreak Soup, which is set in the fictional Latin American village of Palomar. Uh, just really uh, iconic stuff. And number eight, Paper Girls, Image Comics, Brian K. Vaughan and Cliff Chang. Okay, I just started reading this. I'm only on issue two, so I can't speak from experience here, but this is a recommendation that comes from our good friend, Jason Manzoukas. That's right. The story of four newspaper delivery girls in Ohio in the 1980s that get caught up in a interdimensional war between time travelers and is currently being adapted for television by Legendary and Plan B. Shouts to Brad. I can't wait to check that out. Cannot wait. Awesome. Wow. Get to reading, folks. That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. Jason. Yes. Unspoken or otherwise. My parents, Marco and Alana, had always sucked at Vals. But <laughs> every episode, we have sworn that we will honor the characters or ideas that rally the troops, advance the cause. And today, the winner of our open circuit casting call is... Noreen. Sweet Noreen. Hazel tells us at the start of issue 36, quote, death is so fucking predictable, but people like Noreen help make it less so. She didn't absolutely need to help Hazel. She did not need to do that. She made a very dangerous and courageous choice. Noreen is not even able to fully articulate to Clara or to herself, really, why she's doing what she does, but she knows it is right knows that she has to try to protect Hazel, knows that she has a chance to try to meaningfully bridge a gap that 
ingrained prejudice has caused. She has her own family, her own children to think about, but she risks everything to try and make a difference, recognizing that helping one person is often the way to true change. Here's to Noreen, a truly courageous and brave soul. All right, friends. Podcasting is definitely the last sacrifice you can make, but sometimes it's your first one that sets the tone for everything that follows. Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, and Steve Allman, who produced today's episode with us. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that you're staying healthy and safe. We will be back next time for the final Saga Pod on issues 37 through 54. That's book three. Until then, remember, we need punk kunk. I think it's I think it's right up here. I can I can hear him. Well, we better be close, Gwendolyn, because I, I I'm getting I'm growing tired. I do hear something though. I do. Hold on, it's it must be this cave right here. <laughs>